0: Wrestling team,
1: and I'm Andre, actor, dancer, homosexual,
0: and we are here to talk about. But I'm a cheerleader.
1: Welcome to our first official bonus episode. Yeah,
0: technically this is our uh, first one not
1: relating to the podcast. oh we got to figure out a title for these fucking things. We do, we do. But as is Pride Month tradition, well, not really. It's our first fucking time around the block, but. As is Pride Month tradition, for any podcast that has gays in the area, you pretty much have to do a episode on something gay. And since we haven't done Fire Island yet, and we haven't crossed into any other territory outside of our podcast, we decided to touch on a cult classic that deserves its time in the spotlight. And it
0: is one of my favorite queer core or new queer cinema movies of all time. I really, really, really love this movie. Um... It is pretty goddamn influential to my coming out, uh, along with movies from Gregor Rocky. I was a 13 year old boy watching the IFC channel and watching all of the independent cinema that was like for Pride Month way back in the day, where they would show like Gregor Rocky's, like, Nowhere that totally fucked up Doom Generation, but I'm a cheerleader, John Water stuff, like, uh, Female Troubles. <clears throat> Sorry, female troubles, and amongst other things, like I really, really love this type of cinema in particular. Gus Van Sant's My Own Private Idaho, all this kind of stuff is Ugh.
1: buried in this niche. It's uh, the film that we're talking about, if you haven't guessed by the title, is But I'm a Cheerleader, and it's kind of become its own cult classic in its own sense. And for myself, I can't say that this was influential in my coming out. I know that this was I've known of all of these films and all these people that are involved in it but true and pretty much the plot line of this was kind of like spoiled for me years ago but I never actually had the opportunity to sit down and watch it until just recently and when I finally did watch it I remember sitting there and being like number one how did this movie get made and number two why isn't this shown at more like queer cinema nights. Like this movie is so gay. It's so campy It's a perfect, almost near-timeless film, especially even now. And it's actually got a happy ending. Like, how can you argue with that? Yeah, this movie was really, really, really ahead of its time.
0: Uh, It's also one of, like, the first, like, really formative, like, happy ending queer movies uh, that I can remember during its time. Especially because this is, like, at the peak of the AIDS epidemic um, kind of, like, coming into fruition in the 90s, right? So, it's a really subversive, really interesting, very, like, parody of what conversion therapy is for queer kids, and it plays it up in a way that's not serious, but also addresses that these are real things that
1: happen to real queer people. The funny thing about it is that from my first watching experience and again from knowing what happens in this film it does a really good job of being uncomfortable but also being hilarious with its own discomfort does that make sense absolutely um
0: and you know i, I really want to say this too like jamie babbitt who is the director of this she does tie nip tuck she does episodes for them i think during season two and amongst other ones but she's also directed a shit ton of tv shows Um, we're going to go over her trivia a bit later in this episode, but I mean, she's a super, super influential queer director. Let's just put that out there. She's great, really awesome, really distinct style. Uh, I think that really, when it comes down to it, she does comedy and she does it so well too, when it comes to, you know, serious TV series in particular.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I think we just need to dive right into this shit. We we it, it, this is this movie. It's a movie that we're covering, not a show, and we got a lot to cover. But I think as we go on, we'll start to really nitpick and get into the nitty gritty of what we both love, hate, want to see more of. I guess I don't know. I'm not putting any rating on this. This is just us vibing, talking about something that we both collectively love, that we both want to share with more people. That out of all things that I think is probably one of the few movies that you could show to a really wide, I mean, I watched it one the first time with a group of queer people, it was amazing. All of us were talking about it. All of us were giggling and laughing at the same shit. All of us were relating. And then afterwards, it was like this wonderful bonding moment where all of us kind of had this weird moment where we could share a little bit about our, our traumas or our families or like our first sexual experiences or like it was this wonderful, almost utopian moment that you don't really get with a lot of queer media today. and this is me saying this as someone who, while being very sex positive, also has their own prudish moments. So it's a good film let's just let's just, let's just go in let's 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 stop beating around the bush for lack of a better pun.
0: All right, let's get right into it. So we start the movie off with a montage of cheerleaders performing acrobatics to April March's Chick Habit. And we are introduced to the icon, the legend, the star, that is Natasha Lyonne. And for anybody who does not know who Natasha Lyonne is, she is Nikki in Orange is the New Black. And she's also in Russian Doll. Um, She's also in American Pie, The Slums of Beverly Hills, uh, Freeway 2, Confessions of a Trick Baby, amongst other things. Natasha Lyonne is a prolific comedy actress and she does it so well. And she also dated Fred Armisen from uh, SNL and from Portlandia.
1: I have to say that she is, in my personal opinion, severely underrated in her talent and in her capability because she has this very distinct look and her voice is perfectly gravelly, which I love. I, lo- I love a, a woman and, a, and an actress or an actor who has a very distinct look and has a very distinct voice. Those two things together instantly hook my ass in. Yes, she is, I would say, pretty much like the, the uh, 90s equivalent
0: of like who Ming Stole was for John Waters. Oh, we like, cannot talk about Ming Stole enough. Yeah, she's going to be in this movie too, fun fact. Um, so she's playing our titular character, the cheerleader, Megan uh she is you know doing her routine and the cheer captain on her team who's played by michelle williams of dawson creek and <laughs> my weekend with Marilyn. fame uh tells them to be ready early and they're gonna get donuts for their next competition megan is excited for playoffs and walks to her boyfriend's car as he tongue fucks her mouth um She's thinking about the girls on her cheerleading team making the best I am not into it face possible. Well, that
1: scene is so fucking good.
0: It's great. I, I've never seen someone actually do a kiss with so much disdain or like <laughs> lack of interest at the same time where she's like I guess I'm doing this.
1: You want to talk about a, an expression I, of just completely and utterly capital C, capital O checked out. She does it that's right at the dinner table her family prays and her mother
0: who's played by the legendary john waters player mink stole as we had previously mentioned and her father is played by bud court of harold and Maud, um who is also a very fun actor and movie to see if you ever have seen a movie like harold and Maud, you know what i'm talking about it is very sentimental but also very uh i'd say very irrelevant 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 however you say it i have a trouble saying this word Um, But it's a great time. Irreverent. Irreverent. There we go. Um, And, you know, they're talking about the rules of gender during their prayer. In her room, we see a lot of lesbian motifs um, decorated that are subliminal foreshadowing to her character coming out as a lesbian. Uh, The next morning, Megan leaves for school. And her parents are readying for their intervention that they're about to subject her to. At school, Megan puts her arms around the twins on the teen, uh, who are not interested in being touched by her. At her locker, she greets her boyfriend, who tongue fucks her again, and she asks Michelle if uh, she hates when boys do that. And Michelle replies, well, you know, I think it's kind of fun. And takes the poster of a woman out of her locker, and this woman's in a bikini, kind of like doing a kind of sexy pose for the 90s, I guess. It's kind of chaste, but... It's not like Max and FM left like Megan Fox and they being like, here's
1: my ass. <laughs> here's my hole. There you go. Uh,
0: Jared drives her home slowly as Mike, who's played by RuPaul, um, and one of the rare occurrences where he is not in drag in the 90s in a movie. Um, and he is there to pretty much guide the intervention and facilitate the dialogue that they are going to be needing to have. Uh, Megan comes in. And she sees her family and friends and assumes that someone has died. But Mike is there to give that dialogue, as I had mentioned, with all the lesbian iconography that is around her. And puzzled, she reluctantly is sent to True
1: Directions, which is the camp for conversion therapy. The funny thing about this, that if you haven't seen the movie, or if you have seen the movie, that I am still, still not over is this film is one of the few times that you have a main character who is blissfully unaware of their own sexuality for, like, the better part of the film. It is so stupid, and it is so funny all at the same time because the lesbian iconography that is used is so not heavy-handed at this point. It's like beating you over the head with a stick that they are trying to drive. Like, they make the reference in her intervention that she's a vegetarian, and that's a sign of lesbianism. Not anything yeah. else but vegetarianism. They,
0: they mentioned specifically that they were trying to uh, convert over to tofu. Yeah. Which is I, very Lilith Fair of the 90s, it's you know. So yeah. Megan has a picture of Melissa Etheridge <laughs> on her wall.
1: It's, that's the equivalent of having a Tegan and Sarah poster these days.
0: Honestly. And then, like, she has a. Um, what you know, Tegan and Sarah were around during this time in the 90s. Uh, so this could have been something that
1: they put out there or even if they wanted to make it real heavy handed they would have put up a poster of the indigo girls that's where it would have really been that that's not lesbian that's that's almost dank territory at that point
0: yeah or putting up like katie lang with the uh <laughs> cindy crawford like shaving her face yeah constant craving <laughs> you're right um so this was i think uh... melissa
1: Etheridge was the safest and most general choice
0: yeah because I think she
1: had just come out during this time very the come-to-my-window phase of her career. I mean, come-to-your-window, I'm starting to feel a little Georgia O'Keeffe energy here. Yes, with the pillow uh, that she has kind of like crocheted and it's vagina
0: motifs. Oh my God. Um, What else does she have aside
1: from the poster? And she, the twins are like, well, you do like to touch us a lot. Which is very true. She is very... I mean, the other obvious notion is that when she is very actively making out with her friend she's very actively thinking about girls and they do a really harsh job of intersplicing it and she's confused which i love the fact that she's megan is confused this entire time as to why she can't stop thinking about girls but she herself doesn't have the language for it which to be fair yeah it feels genuinely
0: real yeah when you're a queer kid you don't have those words you know like you you can uh understand that you feel different per se But it doesn't seem like, you know, when you're kind of discovering your sexuality, you're like, well, it doesn't feel wrong or it doesn't feel weird, right? Until society, like, conditions
1: you into believing that it is. Well, like Katya even said, and I I actually do love this moment because I, for one, felt very seen when they said is that when you're making out with... I was making out with this person and I was wondering the entire time, is this supposed to be... Is this supposed to feel good? And plot twist, it does. (laughs) It's like... That's exactly the thought process that goes through your mind when you're young and confused and don't have the language for it. Yeah. And I say confused very, very like, generally. Let me put that out there. Not confused in the sense of, you don't know what you want. It's like, no, we know what the fuck we want. We just don't have the lingo for it yet.
0: Pretty much. Um, so let's go into our next scene. While driving up to two directions, she sees a bus with the cheerleaders hanging out the window in glee as they go to their competition for the playoffs. Um, and Sorry, I keep scrolling down a little bit too far. At Conversion Camp, we are greeted by Kathy Morietti, who is Mary. Uh, If you don't know who Kathy Morietti is, she is in Casper. That's where I know her mainly from. (laughs) Uh, But she's been in a lot of movies, you know? She's got a really
1: distinct smoker's voice. If you know who she is, it's kind of husky. Despite the fact that they make her a villain in this, Kathy Morietti as Mary is basically everything I want to be in 10 to 15 years. Yeah, she's a pretty uh, driven woman who does what she wants. Just hardcore Capricorn energy, strapped down in pink. Love this shit.
0: Yeah, and there's a reason for that too, which we will cover in the trivia again. Um, Mary is the founder of True Directions, and her son, Rock, is there as well. And he's played by Eddie Cibrian. Who is unbelievably hot yes he is the fucking eye candy of this movie but also he uh you know got involved with i think what's her name uh the the girl who sings blue
1: from the leanne rimes
0: yeah leanne rimes wow yeah they got married they actually had a very very like crazy love affair on a set of a lifetime movie (laughs) and they were both married at the time i want a
1: lifetime movie about the lifetime movie
0: you know what i would be really happy about that um but they're both currently i think of the real house of real housewives of beverly hills where there's a good back and forth um if not real housewives of orange county i forget which one of the ones that they're on but they're they're crazy they're a good time they're they're drama and they get like going from supporting characters to being actual characters on the show which i really like um but yeah eddie Cibrian, so fucking hot he's like Antonio Sabato Jr. level
1: of, like, this man is way hotter than he has any right to be. And I hope that he doesn't know it. Because when a guy doesn't know that he's hot is even hotter to me.
0: I think, like, nowadays he's aware of, like, how sexy he was then. But I I don't think during the uh, majority of his career he was, you know, touting the fact that he was a sex symbol for people, you know? And I think he's really... What he's really, really embracing a queer
1: sex symbol. Good, he should. Back then, he could have shown pubes, and everyone would have just shit their pants. Oh God, yeah. Uh,
0: so, uh, I think we are uh, Mary commenting that it's a good thing that her parents have brought her here before college, um, which she is then welcomed to the house in by she, I mean Megan, and is painted. Literally, this house is entirely painted in the gender binary. So it's like Barbie, Dreamhouse, and the gender
1: binary. Let's just put it that way. Which, no shade to Barbie. You're talking to someone who fucking loves Barbie. But this movie is so heavy-handed and intentional with its color Mm -hmm. choice and its color palettes. Which, it kind of gives me a little bit of Tim Burton before Tim Burton got into that. Where his color palettes were very specifically chosen. And I kind of love the fact that it's so harshly neon. Because it's it's an undersung genre of color.
0: Yes. These are like jewel tones. These are yes. not neon. They are
1: jewel tone.
0: Like there is no mistaking that this is like Pepto Bismol pink and like baby blue. Like it, it is like those types of jewel tones, you know, where it's like, it's just beaming
1: off the technicolor. It is just uh, right in your face.
0: Yes. And when they enter the house, they are shown a video that explains the indoctrination process of homosexuality uh, that is similar to the propaganda that is shown at real camps. And you know, it's, this was actually a deleted scene that got restored on the director's cut and very glad about it because it's kind of funny because it's like a girl who has a mohawk or Liberty Spikes and she's like talking about how she was, uh, you know indoctrinated into homosexuality. she's like, and then I got on the back of that Harley bike and I got pushed off by my dyke girlfriend And I realized this is not the lifestyle I wanted to live. And then they cut to her like in a wedding dress and with her hair kind of down. And she's like, and this is my true direction. And I have a kid now. And it's like, this is something that like legitimately is shown to kids.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Let's keep that in mind, folks.
0: Yeah. And I do want to say too, like, I am friends with a couple kids who have gone or, you know, grown adults now who were sent to conversion therapy. And it is a very scary and real thing. So let's just put that there now. Um, And then we go to step one in the process at True Directions, which is admitting your homosexuality. Mary encourages Megan to admit her attraction, uh, describing a scenario where she's gazing at a woman in a sexual context, or as we would like to say, the male gaze, um, (laughs) and tells her that she must wear a medical dress until she can admit her homosexuality. And is assigned to Hillary, who's played by Melanie Linsky, who is Shauna from Yellow Jackets. Uh, She is also a New Zealand Kiwi indie darling at this time from Peter Jackson's Heavenly Creatures. And co-starring Kate Winslet from Titanic, uh, she goes over the ground rules for Megan. And they enter the girls' room and they see Graham, who's played by Claire Duvall. Who at this time was probably best known for the faculty um, with Josh Hartnett? Another great fucking film. Yes, fantastic film. Really, really underrated. Where she plays like the golf girl in it, and she's so hot, she's perfect. Um, She immediately is snarky and checks out Megan as she walks out the door. She kind of can peep through the back of the uh, medical dress and see her panties, and kind of like grins. Uh, Hillary then goes over the five steps and admits that homosexuality with ease. She's like, I am a homosexual.
1: The fact that this movie chooses to rarely say the word gay or Or lesbian. Or lesbian, yeah. And they just constantly refer to it as a homosexual, like the most medical scientific term possible, honestly brings a whole new level of comedy to it, which I love. And I wish more people would just go around and introduce themselves like that. Like, I understand labels are important. Labels are also totally useless sometimes but there's something so funny to me about walking up to them and being like I'm a homosexual like I love that I love that shit it's because it's so
0: clinical and it's so like othering you know like immediately Absolutely. and that was a language that was used for like you know queer folk in like the 1920s to 19 like 40s you know or 50s even before we started like adapting like gay as a colloquial term you know
1: yeah I also have to take a moment here and really address the fact that this movie is fucking star-studded. Like, when you really get down to the meat and bones of this film, you have a large swath of really competent actors, number one, and actually some pretty big names nowadays. Like, Melanie Linsky is... That bitch can play anything, in my opinion. She needs more roles because I love how well she plays like an unsettling character and i wish she had a yes. bigger role in this film but we'll take what we can get
0: yeah she was great in candy by the way too if you haven't seen that on hulu she uh is in the jessica biel piloted and uh, i would say you know produced miniseries. really really good worth checking out and yellow jackets season two coming out sometime this year really get into that fantastic series through and through um and it's got so many great people in it too uh Megan is then introduced to the rest of the campers, which include Joel, the Jewish gay, played by Joel Mikeley, uh, who went on to do a lot of indie roles like Ghost World Itty Bitty Titty Committee from the same director of Jamie Babbitt, uh, Clinton, the preppy gay, played by Kip Pardue, who went on to be and remember the Titans, 13 with Evan Rachel Wood, and The Rules of Attraction. Uh Dolph, homosexual varsity wrestling player, uh played by our boy. Dante Bosco, who, if you don't know who Dante Bosco is, uh, you really need to know him as Rufio from Hook and Zuko from Avatar The Last Airbender
1: and Jake Wong, The American Dragon. And we have to take a moment and just acknowledge this because this is something that I personally know for a fact. Dante Bosco is one of the few actors who has very actively said that he is not queer, but not in a negative sense. He's one of the few actors that fully, Fully acknowledges his appeal, his role, and his shaping in the queer experience. He knows it, he embraces it, he acknowledges it, and I give him nothing but props for that. He is so sweet. He is so nice. I've watched him in a million different things. I've watched a million interviews of him. And he fully embraces everything about the LGBTQ community from as far as I've understood. I love that. And we respect that. Yes. And he's actually very fond of this movie, too. He should be. He is so funny in this movie. And I wish his role was so much bigger
0: yeah i mean to be frank like he he's the uh largest male character i would say in this movie yeah like with speaking lines and like actual plot points and stuff like that oh yeah uh but dante bosco great guy overall very attractive and the voice is so good the voice is like chocolate
1: that voice could could soothe my soul on any day <laughs> and he, yes we,
0: i think he knows it we worship at the altar of dante bosco okay just, just a little just a little bit uh, the queeniest Latino gay played by Douglas Spain, whose only real notable following role uh, is Cherry Falls with Brittany Murphy.
1: I would love to re- to do a movie that is not a complete rehash of this movie, but just has the entire cast playing different characters. Could you imagine how fun that would be?
0: yeah and then I, I feel like this would be a really fun movie to like remake but it's also perfect yeah and i don't want anybody to ever touch it because <laughs> it's want so to perfect it. <laughs> yeah and uh we're gonna go on to our next character jan the stone butch played by katrina phillips who got the least amount of work following this movie which is you know a real shame because i feel like it had something to do with race and gender presentation at the time um so that's a real bummer for everybody out there you know she's she's pretty caught she's pretty good uh, and lastly, we have Sinead, played by Catherine Town, who is the goth lesbian, uh, who you may recognize from Sunday in season three of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and also from Mulholland, uh, Mulholland Drive. Fun fact she is the ex wife of Charlie Hunnam, the OG English queer spoke twink Justin Taylor. But in this one, uh, I think his name is something else, but he's the US equivalent of that. Um, and he's great. I, I really, really really love him. His name is uh, Nathan Maloney in the UK version and I really really think that Charlie Hahneman has gotten this entire like masculine like persona now as you know from Sons of Anarchy playing uh, Jack Teller and also in King Arthur. but he was also really, really, really fond of his role as queer as well because it was basically his breakout
1: role. I think that. But then again, when you look at it, a lot of actors have done stuff like this where they play a very personal or intimate role and then they come into a role that's more, quote unquote, palatable for the mainstream audience and they fall into that role so unnaturally and then they're like, yeah, but I also like this. (laughs) And it's like, I loved when I was able to kiss boys and have a good time and it's like, you do that. (laughs) You have fun with that. Yeah, well, because
0: here's the thing. He was uh, in King Arthur with his queerest Folk romance, right? Stuart Allen Jones is his uh, character's name, his actor. His name, forget off the top of my head. But uh, he's great, and I love that they are still really great friends. They walk down the red carpet holding hands together. Oh, we love that. Yeah, they're very, very comfortable in their sexualities. And let me just say right now, like, if you have not seen Charlie Hunneman, he is a fine specimen of a man. Um, he, he gets He gets rimmed in queer folk, and then there's, I found out recently that there is a full frontal that is on the cutting room floor that somebody just has with him.
1: Okay, first of all, we love that.
0: Yes, and if you have it, please send it my way.
1: <laughs> Our email still to this day is niptalkpod at gmail.com. That's correct, niptalk
0: at gmail.com um so anyways megan is coerced into coming out and is spiraling at the idea uh and is then left to sort this out on her own well everybody congratulates her and then gets
1: you know handed her uniform and she's just kind of sit there stunned like
0: i'm homosexual
1: which if you have been on the internet in the last 15 years basically you've seen that particular gif rotate around the the realms of tumblr and twitter every time pride month comes around where it's just her sobbing saying but i'm uh i'm a homosexual oh my god i'm a homosexual and she kind of goes (laughs) cross-eyed yeah she kind of goes a little cross-eyed natasha (laughs) leone herself should have that as their banner for the month of june every single year that's just me though i agree
0: um so megan then sits down in the common area and andre and the group embrace her as Graham snarks at the you know, pass it clarity that everyone is gay. And Mary Chides Rock, who is overtly gay, by the way, if you did not know and see this movie, uh, they have him sipping from a curlicue straw and, you know, Mary's, you know, watering her fake plants. That's cool. going to be another thing that we're going to talk about.
1: That in and of itself, pause. We don't need to go any further than that. Mary in that fucking neon plastic, um, Burberry style coat I don't know what it's not a pea coat I can't remember like a double-breasted jacket yeah watering her fake plants is so fucking iconic to me I live
0: it's very yes it's very very bad. um that night Megan sees Sinead using a taser for aversion therapy and is using it for masturbatory reasons with Graham's sock Uh, I love that Megan's like hey is that Graham's sock like she just knows Um, like she was walking around without a sock all day i I mean mean, (laughs) i mean yeah graham's pretty hot i mean if you were not masturbating to her you better be masturbating to like hillary at this point because your options are slim or even jan Jan's pretty hot let's be real um kathy retrieves megan who has a call from her parents and is being reassured that her parents love her but they are encouraging her to see this through because if she doesn't they don't know how, what to do with her really, you know? And that's
1: a real fact that people put their kids through. And that to me is the most, it, how do I put this? It's not that far-fetched because, you know, a lot of you can put yourself in this position and try and understand it to some extent, but you'll never really understand it. But at the same time, it is fascinating to me that some parents in this world who genuinely love their kids and who think that this is the best option for them really like feel like a fucking like they've completely lost track of what to do with their child to do because they're queer. And it's really fucked up. That that's kind of like the reality that they do to them. Yeah. We just don't know what to do anymore. It's like, really? You were doing pretty good up until you learned this. Yeah. It's not like your entire identity changes. I mean, it does, but not really.
0: Yeah. It's just kind of revelatory if you
1: will um
0: so we move on to step two rediscovering your sexual identity mary chides graham for her flippant attitude towards traditional feminine tasks and you know they're kind of actually sexual overtures as well um well mike does the same with the boys it becomes to the or it comes to the campers to take these tasks and moments to have small passes at each other And to kind of check each other out or small advances that they will have with one another as dressies or, yeah, as dressy besties just like Henry plays in the background. And let me just say right now, great song. Um, It's very kind of like nursery kindercore like stuff. It's Melanie Martinez before Melanie Martinez was ever a thought. No, Melanie Martinez wishes she could. She really, really... I I really don't like Melanie Martinez, and I'm going to just let everybody in the podcast know that right now. Um, I just think that she is contrived. Okay, that's fair. And reductive. But I'll just say this right now. Dressy Bessie, great band. Check them out. Uh, If you like kind of like that uh, cutesy rock stuff, it's really, really fun in the 90s, and it's very DIY. The campers are then encouraged to share their roots, for the debasing of their gender identity. Graham is told to share something which is completely ridiculous, which is seeing her mother
1: get married in pants. And please note, these are completely somewhat fabricated experiences, but in the minds of a conservative Christian, anything that is subtly abnormal about gender expression is seen as a huge marker that something is off. Yes. And this is real thinking that people have. Yes. Yeah.
0: And the group share things such as trivial, uh, you know, matters like an all girl boarding school, being born in France, uh, playing in their mother's clothes, or, you know, locker room showers. These are all things that they are using to uh, debase their gender identity, quote unquote, which is really a weird way of looking at this because nobody in this, uh, you know, I would say aside from Jan, Is really, or even Andre, rather, would uh, be exhibiting, you know, non-conforming statuses to their gender role, you know? Everybody else is very, like, cut and dry, like, I identify as a woman, present as a woman, or as a man, and present as a man, you know? It's the only two characters that are kind of, like, even eschewing on that line are Andre and Jan.
1: And even then, you have to remember, and this is the audience, you know, for the audience's sake, this movie was made in the early nineties when stereotypical queerness was pretty much the only form of queerness we had. You were either a sissy or you were a Butch lesbian, and that was pretty much it. There really wasn't a whole swath of, of spectrums that we have nowadays where you could sit and dissect and be like, oh well, they're probably, you know, non-binary or they're probably, you know, trans. Like these were things that were talked about, but in queer circles and really not known outside of those queer circles intentionally you had a queer understanding of gay and straight and that was basically it yeah that that was really it it's incredibly binary thinking yeah i mean it's not to say that the film flops in this area it's just one of those things like hey be aware you're going into this it's a camp film but it's a camp film that was made almost 30 years ago be aware of that and if you want to sit here and get nitpicky with me about it shut the fuck up because i will not hear this conversation about these films any also, film that is made basically any time in the last 30 years is going to have its problems. This is one of them. I'm not here for it, though.
0: You know what? I'm going to put this out there right now, too.
1: Jamie Babbitt like,
0: put in like, a lot of effort to be very diverse in the casting, Which, and that included like also how she wrote the characters to be exhibiting gender. Um, and it's not to say that the, she was not inclusive, because this would be fairly inclusive for the time.
1: This movie is incredibly inclusive, even still today because yeah. by compared to Hollywood standards, this movie has probably one of the most diverse casts I've literally ever seen on film. Yes. Aside from maybe, maybe my one favorite film that people talk shit about incessantly rogue one, which has an ethnic cast in the star Wars universe and everyone fucking dies. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's, it's really, really fun. Um,
0: Mary then encourages everyone to make a friend and reminder or for the reminder of, or remainder of the program. Wow. I cannot English right now. Um, <laughs> and they use flash cards for aversion therapy. Graham points out the stupidity of this being taken seriously as she flirts with Megan. The boys are then at a play foot...
1: Oh, sorry. <laughs> I saw that too. I was like, what are you trying to say here?
0: Yeah, the boys then play football, while Rock leers and makes uh, very sexualized gestures to
1: them with a rake. Which, let's be honest, this movie has some of the best, like subtle horny moments in it for both guys and girls and i love that you got she gave the audience everything
0: yeah brock is uh using the the rake and the leaf blower in incredibly sexual manners which i'm just like
1: wow okay eddie cibrian spit my mouth and tell me i'm worthless this scene could have only gotten better had he literally just stood there and took his shirt off that was the only way that that scene could have gotten any hornier. hornier without them going into full censorship I mean, he's wearing, like,
0: the tightest tank top I've ever seen on a human being. And then also, like, you know, denim
1: shorts that are way
0: past up, like,
1: mid-thigh. Y'all motherfuckers on TikTok want to talk about a four-inch inseam? Try a zero-inch inseam, and then we'll talk. Yeah, I mean, these are almost Daisy Dukes. They really are. They're, like, on the cusp. They are very close.
0: Um, and, you know, while all the boys are caught lusting by Mike...
1: Batman could sneeze and an egg would pop out.
0: Yeah, and Mike, who's played by RuPaul, is, you know, looking at him being like, oh, you boys always looking for things that you can't touch. And it's like, uh, are you sure you're not the one who wants to touch your Mike? Which, we love RuPaul and Boy Drag at this point, let's be honest. Yeah, and he threatens them with uh, watching sports all weekend, as he, you know, less for Rock himself. The girls are then being shown uh, how to change diapers with dolls, and Megan and Graham start their enemies to lovers arc which is a fun time
1: step three family
0: therapy yes joel and andre share sexual temptations as graham's father belittles them and threatens to disinherit graham if she does not come back straight as he and his wife leave megan then says that she believes that her root was her mom who took over as the breadwinner while her father was laid off and Mary uses this to say that this is why she disrespects her parents and men, which I'm just like, uh, no. <laughs> She's then told to come up with a song for therapy. Mike is seen, you know, further lusting over Rock, who suggestively starts up a chainsaw.
1: <laughs> That's it's so good.
0: <laughs> yeah, this is the most phallic chainsaw I've ever seen in my life
1: which i mean who hasn't i mean when they say fuck me fuck, go fuck yourself with the chainsaw like honestly and i was gonna say i've seen texas chainsaw too oh god and
0: this is uh this is up there with the use of the phallic chainsaw mm-hmm. metaphor um <laughs> and andre finds an, an invite to the cocksucker which is the gay bar that they're going to
1: that is a great name for a gay bar the cocksucker yeah
0: and plans a night out. Megan is struggling to come up with a cheer and Graham offers a suggestion. She then mocks Megan's cheerleading and tells her that when she's caught with a friend, that's why she's there. And uh, you know, that's the whole secret to everybody being there, they're like, if you were here, you were either bad at being caught or you were too obvious. And Graham was the latter, she was caught. And she's caught with a friend who, you know, And there's no trying to change since this is who they are. That's kind of like her feelings towards this. And while they're getting ready for bed, Megan begins to glance at Graham uh, to, if you should try and kiss her by dressy Bessie as well. Um, It's a cute little nursery rhyme kind of song too. Uh, She fantasizes about Chris and Graham or kissing Graham. And she then leaves to masturbate and nearly earns this film an NC 17 in the process. Honestly. And she catches Dolph and Clayton kissing and then rats them out to Mike when they are all discovered because she tases them both.
1: Which, uh, first of all, I love the fact that she is the one that catches them. Second of all, I love the fact that it's basically implied that she was going to tase them both with that fucking rod. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this thing is pretty much just a dildo and she's just kind of like, no, I'll tase them. I mean... You take the batteries out and it's still pretty functional in my opinion. Yeah,
0: it's also very phallic. Um, the campers eavesdrop as, you know, Mary's kicking out Dolph and punishing Clayton with solitary confinement to a literal kid's house, which is supposed to be doghouse, but I'm just like, Jesus. Um, and the campers all turn on Megan due to this due to the next morning. And Graham defends her honor and they all invite
1: her out. Step four. Demystifying the opposite sex which really and truly feels like something gay people do constantly. (laughs) We really do. We we really do it through parody more so and in drag.
0: Uh, But that's kind of like the fun thing to talk about. The campers are shown a slideshow as Graham secretly begins to graze Megan's arm. And eventually this leads to, you know, a hold as trailer song by Sissy Bar plays. And, you know, to the montage of the girls getting closer happens. Graham reveals that she doesn't have any friends outside of the camp. And Megan walks in on one of the girls getting ready and to sneak out to the cocksucker and encourages Megan to come out with them. The campers meet Larry and Lloyd as they enter the gay bar called the cocksucker. Um, and this may have been the menagerie, to be honest. <laughs> it has the same layout. And are you talking about the one in Riverside? Yes, the menagerie in Riverside. <laughs> I Even hope though this to God, it would, I would here, kill. It might have been because it may have been from the reshoots, but this movie was primarily filmed in Palmdale, which is not too far from where I live. But yeah, uh, <laughs> it's kind of funny because they're, you know, in this bar, and Larry and Lloyd are like two older queers
1: who are like, yeah, like we're bears, but you know, we're
0: we're out here doing it up for the kids.
1: I. I have to say this, too. I love the fact that there is an actual wide swath of LGBT individuals in this film. And again, we'll get into the casting later. The casting is exceptional. But the fact that this cast is not only multi-ethnic, but also really diverse for what they are. So clap it out. That's a good choice. It is a very good choice. Uh,
0: Graham pushes Megan to dance with a lipstick lesbian um, who is played by Megan. Or sorry. I, I've read that completely wrong. Um, Graham pushes Megan out to dance with the lipstick lesbian and Megan sees Sinead asking Graham to dance to make Megan jealous. And then she bolts for the door because she can't handle seeing Graham with her. The two argue
1: Who've and then there. they
0: share, huh? Been there. Yeah. The two then argue and they share a passionate kiss as Sinead bitterly watches in the background. Mary awakens to see everyone sneaking back but doesn't see who exactly it is, and then Graham sneaks in one last kiss as Sinead sneers. Megan brushes her teeth uh, to the funnel of love by Wanda Jackson. And at group, Jan says she's straight and is mocked and then quits the program because what she says is that
1: you know I realize I like balls. <laughs> I just want a big I just want a big dick inside of me. Ooh, same girl.
0: No, she says, I just want a big fat and then that's when Andre cuts in and goes like me too,
1: girl. Honestly though, Andre is uh, such a good side character. He really is. He's got some pretty good quips. Uh,
0: while cleaning the girls' room, Mary stumbles across the matches from the Croc sucker from the night before and accuses the campers with being kicked out. She targets Graham, who deflects with saying that she has a crush on someone, but she says the crush is Joel. And then we see Mary threatening with parental meetings for each of the campers. Megan is threatened with being disowned by her family and she has participated in the sneak out. She then lies about you know, missing her boyfriend, Jared. And then Mary calls Larry and Lloyd to threaten them with a protest for trying to influence the campers and they show up outside of their house,
1: which is a really shitty thing to do. It's very like Westboro Baptist Church. It very much has that energy, and also some of the signs that they're holding are pretty fucking iconic. Like, I'm not gonna lie, despite the homophobia that is very present in a lot of these signs, it would be kind of iconic to go to Pride dressed as this group with those fucking signs because they are that stupid, but they're also that on brands with, you know, conflict of interest well i feel like most millennials would not get the reference but i feel like a lot of like the older generation would oh no um, you, fuck gen z gen z would get none of these jokes they'd be like that's homophobic it's like no it's funny first of all well, calm down no
0: i wouldn't say all of gen z because i feel like this is now such a cult classic that it's kind of like a queer coming of age movie you know but i i, I want to say that a lot of kids i don't feel like are really into like new queer cinema so like me like writing for a zine for example because we have um, a zine from a friend that I wrote a really nice essay kind of explaining like the history of new queer cinema and its reverence to the queer community currently and how it's brought about a lot of, you know, cinematography, a lot of uh, queer storytelling, a lot of inclusive casting, that kind of stuff. It's, it's still really, really pertinent to queer history.
1: I hope it remains pertinent for a while because the thing is that this movie is, and again, we're going to keep going, but this movie is so, number one it's just damn funny it is it's a great time but number two is that even nowadays you could write an entire dissertation on just the entire concept of gender or the nature of happy endings for lesbians or like queer representation like this movie has solid structure to it even though, even in terms of writing on a more, something that's more abstract which would be the concept of camp itself
0: I mean it has it all for everybody
1: got something for everyone yeah
0: and uh while they're protesting outside a boy comes from the home and recognizes graham who throws a rock at him, uh and then they leave as megan stands in confusion with a sign that says silly Epsler, dicks are for chicks oh <laughs> wait i'm
1: sorry i love that i love it
0: so much yeah it's a really good like frame by itself in the movie Um, everyone then feigns being straight to get sent off their trails and we go to the final step
1: which is simulated sexual lifestyle which holy crap this is this to me i know that this has happened before i know that this happens at these conversion camps it has to and this genuinely concerns me
0: it does concern me as well, but the thing is is that I know that it's not as like silly as it is
1: portrayed in this film. No, I know, yeah. 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 Okay,
0: so everyone is graded by Mike and Mary as Ray of Sunshine by Ghostsiller Plays. Uh, everyone passes but Andre, who cries, and is told to be proud of who he is by Joel, who begins to flirt with him. And then Andre tells off the groove before, you know, exiting with a very chola shit. Valentino wishes. It's very bad. Um, that night, Megan and Graham sneak off and share a very tender love scene as Glass Face Cello Case by Tattletail, which is super hard to find on a set tape. This is a cassette tape song. And it was very, very limited um, in terms of like the press release that was given. And at this point at the time that I can find, this is, uh, if you're going to purchase this cassette, it's over $300 on Amazon.
1: You know, leave it to the lesbians to make one of the best, like, sex scene songs and it be this fucking expensive and this fucking hard to find.
0: Yes, it's really, really, really hard to find. Um, It's not on any streaming platform that I can think of. The only one that I can think that it is on is actually YouTube because people have just ripped it from this movie and put it on YouTube, which I think is
1: pretty great. I mean, sometimes you have to do what you have to do. You're talking to someone who used YouTube to MP3 converter for years. That's pretty much how I have this song today.
0: (laughs) I'm not advocating for piracy, but I'm just saying this movie is, uh, you know, pretty essential for a lot of queer people and this song in particular. And, you know, I feel like they are a queer kind of folk punk band. So they would probably be okay with you pirating their music at this point. They probably would advocate for it. I would hope so.
1: I really would.
0: Yeah. Megan then confines that this is the uh, only time that she's felt this way, aside from cheerleading. And the next morning, Mary informs that, you know, she was caught by Sinead and tells her in one on one that she's going to be kicked out unless she does a simulation with Rock, who she scoffs at as we see him doing the gayest dance to Party Train by RuPaul.
1: Which I'm not going to lie, that's good ad placement right there. I mean, RuPaul dropping songs
0: on iTunes before?
1: Before Pioneer. iTunes was even a thing?
0: Yeah, pioneering. Pioneering is what we call it. I'm, I'm surprised it wasn't Snapshot, to be honest. Because <laughs> Snapshot was like RuPaul's like biggest song, aside from Cover Girl at this point in time.
1: Um, and it's also super gay. I- Graham? <laughs> I'm just going to throw that out there. You're just going to throw it out there. But Did you know that RuPaul is a homosexual? I didn't know that. I mean, Joey J invented being a gay.
0: <laughs> so, yeah. Graham is now being threatened by her parents uh, with the phrase Raging Bull Dyke, which is really funny because Mary, who is played by Kathy Marietti, was in the iconic Raging Bull at this point in time. Um, and Megan is leaving. Mary reveals that Graham is being agreed to partner with Rock. With nowhere to go, she makes her way to Larry and Lloyd's and asks if they will show her how to be a lesbian. You know, what they do, what they eat, where they go. Which is a great line. I feel like that was improvised. And they
1: both kind of look at her and are like, honey, we can't do that. We're gays. I really wish that that was improvised because that is a really good line. I feel like it is because I
0: feel like, you know, Natasha Leon has some pretty good comedic chops of her own.
1: I also need to take this opportunity before you say the next thing because we're going to, we're, we're back with Larry and Lloyd. And we meet Dolph, obviously. But please tell me, why is Dolph wearing the Target equivalent of a Pride uniform from last year? Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. I do. I, I love the fact that I was sitting there watching this and I could think oh, look, it's the Target Pride attempt from last year.
0: The Pride collection? Yes. Ooh.
1: Sorry, uh, the Pride
0: collection from Target in 2008. 2000- in 2021, it was not the move. Um, so there's that, and this is a you know where they're kind of reconnecting. And Dolph thanks Megan for having kicked out, and they devise a plan to get their lovers Clayton and
1: Graham back. Which is honestly, this is this is queer. Uh, what the hell would be a queer solidarity at its finest?
0: Yeah, and Graham is contemplating the situ or completing the actual simulation with Rock, and it's super dumb and comfy. And Larry and Lloyd are, you know, being the gay dads that they are offering the next steps to Megan. They're like, Yeah, you wanna go to college? And she's like, I don't know, it's kind of early. And then they kind of like are doing
1: really good therapy with one another, talking about communication. Which that scene is played totally for last, but truthfully that is the that is the way you should try and address some things sometimes. Not all the time, but sometimes at least.
0: Absolutely. And then we end with graduation, and the campers are getting ready for the graduation ceremony as Megan and Dolph and their army gillies are ready to steal their loves away from this bullshit. Graham is reluctant to leave, and Megan, however, or leave with Megan, however, but Dolph had no trouble getting Clayton. Just going to put that out there because, you know, Dante Bosco, hoppies of ass.
1: I'm just saying, Dante Bosco could still get it today. 100%. Absolutely. Yeah,
0: Megan tries one more time in her cheerleading uniform this time around. And this scene always makes me cry. I'm not going to lie. Because it's so sincere. And this is actually a reshoot scene. This wasn't actually in the original edit of the movie. That's so shocking. Yes. Um, Which is one of the weirdest things, too. Because they wanted to have no actual cheerleading from Natasha Lyonne. And she's a cheerleader, in the fucking movie. So the only real scene of her cheerleading that we would have seen in the entire movie was the opening
1: credits. I, I'm i going to say this. That is very Chekhov's gun. It really is. Because it literally, in their entire love scene, it very directly mentions, and it, isn't it Graham that says it? Graham says it very directly that she would love to see her cheerlead at some point. Yeah, that's what she says. And because it's like, Megan says the only time that she feels as good
0: as she does when she's having sex with Graham, because she had her first orgasm, I'm assuming, um, is when
1: she feels when she's cheerleading. It's exhilarating. And yeah, and for them to not want to in- or not intentionally include this personally, incredibly iconic. and And you're right, it's very sincere. It's very sweet, too, in the context of the film. If you watch the film with intention and get to this point and don't have one of those moments where it's like, I want someone to cheerlead for me at my moment. Like you are not fucking human. Cause even I was like, oh, this is actually really cute.
0: Yeah. And the thing is that Natasha Lyonne doesn't do anything really that physical as far as like cheerleading goes. She's just standing there and like, has this like sincere look and vulnerability in her eyes. As she says, one, two, three, four. I won't take no anymore. Five, six, seven, eight i want you to be my mate one two three four you're the one that i adore five six seven eight don't run from me because this is fate
1: i love you it's so cute yeah i'm just saying if any if any boy did this to me at this point i probably would laugh a little bit but i probably would find it exceedingly sincere
0: because it is like this is just such a real like vulnerable teenage experience of love you know like this is something that you would do to show you know a classmate or your peer at the time if you're like 16 that you love them yeah absolutely and it's just it's so it's raw it's raw and it's queer like vulnerability and it's earnestness you know Mary shoes her off and Megan runs to the truck as Graham runs after her. And they share one last passionate kiss as Glassface case plays again in the overture. And in the post credit scene, Megan's parents are attending a P Flag meeting where they end with Together and Forever
1: in Love by Ghost Sailor. Which is very, it's, it, again, this movie ends on an oddly hopeful note for it being made in the early 90s
0: it really does because i feel like most films in the 90s you did not get a happy ending like you were going to die of aids hiv um or hiv aids and like you were going to be hate crimed or yeah. you're going to be disowned and that was all you got yeah so for this movie to be queer optimism at the time is really what set it apart i feel like um because it's just it's something that you don't see even that often right now in 2020, or 2022 there's only so many movies that have happy endings like this
1: and the funny thing about it is this movie kind of sits in a realm of its own and what I mean by that is you have a sh- you have shows Heartstopper for instance Heartstopper is very much cotton candy fluff It's not trying to say anything. It's not trying to do anything. It's just pure, wholesome show. That's it, really and truly. And there's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes you need that that type of media and that type of representation to really connect with people and connect with an audience. Then by contrast, you have a show like, from what I've understood, Elite or even Euphoria to some extent, where it's more of that... I guess, aggressive queer lifestyle, does that make sense? I don't wanna sound negative entirely about that, but it's um, an opposite end of the spectrum.
0: I, I wanna say it's necessarily aggressive. Let me just rephrase this. It's, I feel like with the queer nuance that we have now in terms of how we talk about like, representation, especially post-queer folk, um, we can understand that sexuality can be shown for queer folk and it's not necessarily needing to be sanitized for a straight audience like and grace for example um so it's it's not overt in the sense where you know it's beating you over the head with like yes this is just aggressive queer sex but it is there there's a lot of ambivalence and towards like how we portray queer people as well there's a lot more gray area um in terms of like who is a good person who is a person who is flawed you know it's it's very that so there's uh I would say this movie is very like queer optimism where everybody is fundamentally a good person.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think what I'm getting at Morley is that this movie kind of stands alone in the fact that it is queer optimism, but it's not saccharine.
0: It's not, it's very, you know, it's grounded. It's grounded in the ways that it's
1: very like black comedy too. And I appreciate that though, because a lot of times it's either it's, a lot of queer experiences, especially in films or TV, are very black and white experiences. And that can be really disenchanting and disheartening sometimes, because if it's far too fantasy, then it's really out of the realm of understanding and on like relatability. But if it's so hard line like reality, it's like, wow, this is kind of, it's kind of bummed me out, you know? And this does a really good job of towing the line between both.
0: Yeah I would say it's, it's very genuine in yeah. a weird way, even though it's like so slapsticky and very camp,
1: yeah.
0: it's very genuine in how it like portrays the queer experience. Um, so let's get into some trivia. Shall we? Shall we? Yeah. So fun fact. Megan was almost played by someone else, and she was not the first choice to be played by Natasha Leone. In fact, they actually had someone who else who was casted entirely but couldn't accept the role because of their religious background. And that person has not been named to this day, but I think it was very heavily speculated that it was Mandy Moore.
1: Really? I. Yeah. I mean. That. When was this movie made again?
0: 1999. Yeah, that makes Which, sense. Yeah, it would have been nineteen ninety-eight during the filming. Um but yeah, I I really they haven't named her specifically, but I feel like it would have been Mandy Moore.
1: Because it would have been I, funnier than hell if it was Mandy Moore for some reason.
0: Yeah, I just it feels like how they've kind of like contextualized who this actress is, that it could have been Mandy Moore, but I really don't think that, you know, she is religious in that sense where she'd be like, I can't do this. But I think more so, her agents would have pushed for that narrative for her, you know, because she's very cookie cutter.
1: Well, and especially at the time, Mandy Moore was in this position in Hollywood, at least as far as I can recall, where she was very, um, palatable, white girl next door.
0: Yeah, she, like she very much Lee Taylor Swift. Yeah, she really fit that like virginal
1: image, but also like wanting to sing about sex, you know. She was like, I'm very girl next door, where it's like, <laughs> I won't talk about fucking but i'll let you think about it yeah
0: but then you know what's also funny is that the second choice was then offered to rosario dawson and rosario dawson (laughs) if you know who she is is a very like talented actress very capable um she at this time would have been known for kids which was a harmony corinne film about teenage sexuality and uh, it's very hard to watch um (laughs) And not in the sense that it's, like, a bad movie. It's that the subject matter is so dark.
1: Oh, God, it's like the children's hour.
0: And it's pretty hardcore. I mean, the opening scene is, like, a 15-year-old, like, or a 17-year-old teenager, I'd say, like, having sex with, like, a 13-year-old prepubescent girl.
1: Okay, that's that's a lot. Yeah, and,
0: like, the entire plot of the movie is that the main character, Telly, and his girlfriend, who's played by chloe symbian uh chloe syvianni at this point in time are hiv positive and they don't know and they're spreading hiv wow yeah it is an an incredibly hard movie to watch
1: that (laughs) i don't even have proper terminology for that fucking movie right now yeah and it's all the characters are supposed to
0: be like 16 17 years old like you know, young kids talking, like, about how much they enjoy sex, and, like, it's, it's a very ex- explicit movie. Um, let me just say that. But, you know, Rosario Dawson was cast, and, you know, the executive producer of the film said that she couldn't play the role due to her not being able to be all-American, quote-unquote, due to her being Hispanic. Oh, wow. Well you we love a racist comment. Yeah, so that was the uh that was the only kibosh that I could tell from the actual like acting choices for who they were gonna cast. So Natasha Leon was actually third in line to play this role.
1: <laughs> I I honestly don't think they could have picked anybody better. Like, I'll be honest, Rosario Dawson would have been an interesting choice because it would have added another layer of representation and she's you know she's Hispanic she's all American she's going through this she's having these moments and I could totally see Rosario Dawson sitting there crying and being like I'm a cheerleader but at the same time I don't feel like it would have worked for her does that make sense yeah
0: and let me put this out there too I feel like Rosario Dawson has the same energy as Michelle Rodriguez
1: a little bit yeah
0: yeah and I feel like uh, right now because of like where we are in the world like let's talk about this Rosario Dawson and her family do not have a great like track record when it comes to the trans community right now because they have a very active lawsuit from a uh, landscaper who is a trans man that they would... I, well, this is mostly from her family. Actively discriminate against and really not address him with his proper pronouns. And it's very unfortunate that this all kind of like took place. And I feel like Rosario kind of had some complicitness in this, but also has spoken out very publicly that they support the trans community. They've always been a very vocal ally for the LGBTQ community, and, uh, you know, hopefully Rosario Dawson is not such a bad person, but their family seems to have some very uh,
1: traditional
0: Hispanic views on gender, and that's a, a very sad thing to see.
1: Yeah, that's also the safest answer to leave in this particular situation, so that way we don't get sued. Yeah, this is all alleged... Ladies and gentlemen, this is the alleged portion of the podcast. Yes.
0: Um, So next up, we have Cleo Duvall uh, had actually shown the script to Natasha when they were driving, and Natasha had asked to be part of the film. While she showed up, she wore all black uh, at a meeting with Jamie Babbitt at a coffee shop where they were kind of, you know, doing this casting process and was very tough and was a self-described stoner. And if you don't know about Natasha Leo's drug problems, uh, she was addicted to heroin at one point.
1: I can see that.
0: Yeah. And that scar that she has in her chest in Orange is a New Black, that is actually hers.
1: Okay. Good, good to know.
0: Yeah, because she uh, had some heart problems due to her drug use. Uh, on the first day of set, she was supposed to be wearing a sports bra, as the cheerleaders do. And the night prior, she had gotten a tattoo drunkenly the night before, which really, really upset JV Babbitt. Because she's like, how are we going to film this? You're supposed to be wearing this set wardrobe piece, right? And you, you can't do it now. So how the fuck are we going to film around this?
1: Well, they figured out a way. Life finds a way. Yeah. Well, they did a blocking shot of just her from the front. I mean. And they had her hair down. <laughs> they're like, quick, put your hair down. You don't need this. Well, she's the only cheerleader
0: there who doesn't have her hair up. Which, you actually look at it.
1: And if you've done any type of cheerleading, you know that having your hair down unless it's absolutely short and not going to be in your face is really not the tea. Yes. And fun
0: fact, too. Clea and Melanie had previously worked together on Natasha's previous short film called Sleeping Beauties. Um, And Natasha was friends with Clea from a different movie role. Um, so they had some fun interaction with the cast, kind of knowing each other and being friends. Good for her. Yeah. you know, And you know, Natasha and Claire are kind of like a, a duo, per se, now, where they have a lot of acting credits with each other. Um, they actually did a, another movie in, I want to say, the 2010s, where they were a lesbian couple again. And it's kind of like a spiritual succession, I feel like, in that regard. But it, it, it's nice. We love to see them
1: kind of having that friendship. <laughs> We love that. We, we love lesbians. Hi, gay.
0: Hi, gay. Happy, happy. Um, so Jamie Babbitt had also wanted to make a film about rehabilitation centers in particular, uh, because her mom had run one. So her mom's rehabilitation center was not for conversion therapy. It was for kids with dependency issues. So that included drug-related issues called New Directions, which is where we get the parody of True Directions.
1: And the eventual, <laughs> the eventual kids group, One Direction.
0: That's right. Babbitt had also wanted to make the soundtrack really queer and focusing on folk punk, which is why we get so much of it. Um, mostly because it was a very DIY, riot girl movement at the time. And that really inspired her to be a feminist, and you know, kind of have a very "fuck you, do it yourself" kind of personality. And I think that Jamie, uh, at the time, was going to, I think UCLA, and her girlfriend had produced a lot of Gregor Rocky's movies at the times, uh, which include "Totally Fucked Up," "The Doom Doom Generation," and um, "Nowhere," which is my favorite new queer cinema movie but also The Living End, which is a very like influential movie of its time because it features two main characters who are both dying of AIDS. So that was a, you know, interesting kind of take on this. So she kind of got the funding from her girlfriend, who's a producer, and also from somebody else, but we will discuss very shortly here. Um, after the release of this film, it was heavily criticized for the rise of humor regarding the very serious subject of conversion therapy and its light tone uh, for the AIDS epidemic, which was taking place during this time by the older queer audience. Um, Entertainment Weekly actually gave this film an F rating, which Babbitt took in stride because never having seen that in a rating before, uh, she was a very avid EW reader. So that's very, you know, It can be very hurtful for somebody who's a first-time director. And this was her first feature film. But she struck a chord with a younger audience, so she was very proud of this film. The film has gone on to be one of the, or named one of the best of all time. Five lesbian movies ever made by uh, After Ellen, as well as the number one on the 100 best lesbian movies of all, all time by Otto Straddle who are our friends because we love to L on Back, uh, which is an L Word retrospective podcast as well. So shout out to them. Um, and Curvis called it an incredible comedy that redefined the lesbian film.
1: Which I think it's important to acknowledge the few things about this. The film was really heavily panned by critics at this time. Like from the information that I've gathered just watching this film and just looking at it, it was not received and not even really like watched or rewatched for a very long time. Like it floated in cult outer space for a very long time before it was kind of rediscovered probably within maybe just the last 10 years at most, or it's really developed a very strong cult following, but the film itself was very actively not viewed favorably for a really long time, pretty much since its inception. Yes. And, you know, I I feel
0: like it's endured so heavily because of the many things about it that are so inclusive. Um, on set, Natasha,
1: night
0: on set. Natasha Leone had called Jamie Babbitt, uh, or was called by Jamie Babbitt, Nancy Kerrigan for her sunny disposition. So she really was like a very like upbeat type of personality. And it's just kind of funny to me because I love Nancy Kerrigan and, uh, this is also during the time where Tanya Harding had allegedly
1: taken her out, but <laughs> <laughs> it's if you've seen I Tanya, you know it's not that simple. I want to go Tanya Harding on the whole world's knee. Thank you, Fallout Boy, for that one. Frankly, um, the character of Megan was intended to be a cheerleader from the start,
0: due to you know it being the pinnacle of the American dream and the dream of American femininity. This also contrasted seven other films that centered on butch lesbians at the time. And Jamie Davitt is herself a self-proclaimed femme. Um, and she really wanted to kind of like put that, you know, into the ether because I believe at this time there were films like uh, Desert Hearts, uh, The Watermelon Woman, The Incredibly True Story of Two Girls in Love. These were all films that kind of had like, you know, a, a butch femme dynamic. And this is, I guess, one of the first like femme-fem dynamics, I would say, for a love story. Yeah. And the sets were inspired by John Waters, Pink Narcissus by James Bidgood, who this movie came out in 1971 and it's basically like softcore porn. But if you really look at the visual aesthetic of this film, it is amazingly like spot on for the I... influence.
1: I have to take a few moments of your time. I don't think anyone in this, in this <laughs> room currently loves James Bidgood as much as I do. Like, one of his photos, which is literally my favorite photo of all time, where it's the Cupid sitting in the heart of flowers under that really harsh, high contrast, pink and blue and white with gold. I love his aesthetic so much. I love his photography to the extent that I remember watching Pink Narcissa in my queer cinema class and being the only one who fully could not look away from the screen. Because I was in a classroom full of, like, fucking stuck-up people and they were like, are we in here? It's like, you took a classical queer film. You're going to see butts and you're going to see dicks. Like, this is what you get. And I remember being so enthralled to this day by his work rest in peace you were an icon you were a legend you were the moment i love his work you don't understand
0: (laughs) yeah and if you really like his work you would really like gregor rocky as well because he takes a lot of influence as well um and i'm telling you like gregor rocky is my favorite like new queer cinema director and i really really wanted to get into totally fucked up or nowhere with me um for one of our bonus episodes so be prepared for that to happen at some (laughs) point um but I feel like you would get a lot out of probably Totally Fucked Up. But Nowhere is my favorite film of his. And I feel like if you love that like style of cinematography, you will get it
1: from Nowhere. Um, I, I just love James Bingo's entire presentation of this just un, unreal fantasy built literally in their apartment. I love that. Yeah.
0: Um, as well as being taken influence from Edward Scissorhands and uh, David LaChapelle and Barbie. She wanted Megan's initial world to be very muted and brown versus the synthetic and very uh, binary colors of True Directions to be very, very artificial in the world that they're existing in. So it's kind of like going from, you know, the black and white to the Technicolor and Wizard of Oz in its own sense, you know?
1: That makes sense.
0: Yeah. The character of Mary is a germaphobe, um, which is intended to be symbolic of the AIDS epidemic. Also, everything that surrounds her and her life is fake, like the fake flowers that she waters, the painted skies in the house, and the furniture are being sealed in plastic to preserve it. So that was a commentary right there.
1: Which I personally would have loved if it was a little bit more heavy-handed, mm-hmm. but I can understand that you have to, you know, kill your darlings at some point in order to get the film actually moving in one direction or another. Or in the yeah. truth direction.
0: Also, uh, Kathy Morietti had described her motive for the film, or at least Mary's motive in the film, being that her husband had left her for another man. <laughs> so that was something that was not in the film, but was written in the script for her, to but have kind of like a basis for the character existing.
1: The best part about it is that it makes total sense. You watch <laughs> the film, it makes total sense yeah absolutely
0: and she also like really puts that on her son rock you know as to not do that kind of thing
1: yeah to not be effeminate to not be gay but to be dancing around a RuPaul and being just absolute candy yes um, Jamie Babbitt
0: recently went to see this film for the first time in Brooklyn uh, with her daughter who is 15 years old to a sold out theater, and I want to say that's great that's really
1: really fun to kind of put out there you know Uh I would have loved to have been there, but more importantly, and I don't know if this is a possibility, because we've talked, we've we've mentioned people on this podcast and gotten reactions and responses from people unexpectedly, but Jamie Babbitt would probably be a conversation that we really wouldn't know what the fuck to do with. No, we wouldn't. We, I, I would probably explode on site. <laughs> we would have to be peeling you off the ceiling.
0: Yes, and during the... Um... The, re- the re-release of this film with the director's cut finally Jamie actually made it a point to only interview with queer podcasts
1: we love that Yeah,
0: Fuck it she, up. she did no interviews with straight people and I live for that during my pride month
1: uh, absolutely because I don't know about you but please tell me this is not just an I don't think this is only a me thing I genuinely forget that some people are straight sometimes yeah and uh, that's, that's very valid But Jamie was also really inspired by Todd
0: Haynes and her girlfriend at the time who had produced some of Gregor Rocky's, uh, you know, films. And these were two queer contemporaries, Todd Haynes, who directed, uh, I think the documentary about what's her name? Uh, Fuck. The one who died of an eating disorder, the Carpenters, Karen Carpenter. Karen Carpenter. With the Barbie. yeah. Yeah. He did the one, the movie, the documentary with all the Barbies that you can find on Vimeo and I think YouTube now. But it's a really, really effective documentary and it's very do-it-yourself. And he, I think, actually, like, went over, like, the script as far as, like, supervising it go, you know? So he did any, like, uh, reworks and rewrites. So it's very good to have an older queer contemporary give you that kind
1: of, you know, insight. Not only that, but this behind-the-scenes that we're doing right now, all this trivia and stuff, is really just showing you what a queer collective of creatives can actually create and build.
0: Yes, Um, a conscious effort was really put into cast for inclusivity of people of color, which was, uh, you know, to combat racism on every level of filmmaking in Babbitt's words. But also i want to point out too that new queer cinema, this is not anything new. Um, I really, 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 really strive to push for people to be more invested into this because of this reason. It was an incredibly inclusive environment for filmmaking Um, not only having queer actors actually play queer characters, um, but also having a lot of racial representation, uh, body diversity, racial uh, diversity, ethnic and religious background diversity being represented in film, um, as well as socioeconomic diversity. So that's something I really want to put out there for new queer cinema has always been representative of. And I think that's where it kind of like differs from today's queer cinema where it's very uh, not- in a lot of cases, it's very you know palatable for a mainstream straight audience to be queer.
1: Uh-oh. The film bros, uh, even Fire Island to some extent, but we're not going to talk about that.
0: We will talk about that on another level um, in another episode. The role of Mike, uh, which is played by RuPaul, was almost given to Arsenio Hall, but Hall was uncomfortable with playing a gay character
1: and this resulted, uh, the rare out of drag appearance from RuPaul Charles. I'm going to say this. If Arsenio Hall had taken this role on, I would have probably thrown up because Arsenio yes. Hall at this point in American culture was still really relevant and still, and to me is still one of the great undersung black comedians of a generation. Like I genuinely think that they deserve more attention for the shit that they've did if wanted to have a conversation about Arsenio Hall's talk show alone. Arsenio Hall's talk show was pretty fucking transformative for late night television, which it still is to to this day, actually. But had Arsenio Hall taken this role, I think it would have garnered him a fan base in the queer community that he would have never fully known what to do with. And that would have been okay. Truthfully, yeah. Um, Here are some fun things that Jamie Babbitt has done
0: since this movie. Uh, She has directed for Popular, the Ryan Murphy original show, if you have not heard of it. Uh, it is great with Leslie Grossman. Um, Nip Tuck, which is our show that we talk about. Gilmore Girls, Malcolm in the Middle, United States of Terra, Looking, The L Word, Silicon Valley, The Marvelous Mrs. Mizell, uh, A League of Their Own, the TV series that's coming out that's going to be very queer because of her. Uh, Castle. Ugly Betty, Dirty Sexy Money, Drop Dead Diva, Gossip Girl, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, Only Murderers in the Building, and amongst other TV series. She's also directed four other films, including The Itty Bitty Titty Committee, uh, Addicted to Fresno, and The Quiet.
1: I'm just going to say this, Jamie Babbitt. You are one busy bitch, and I love that for you. Yes, she has stayed blessed
0: and booked. And Ryan Murphy, in particular, because he runs Gay Hollywood, apparently, um, really, really strived for her to be included in the list of directors of his projects.
1: I respect that.
0: Yes. Um, I don't particularly like that Ryan Murphy will strong arm a lot of people into being relegated to only his projects. But I do appreciate that he does advocate for her specifically as a female and a lesbian director to be able to participate in his reindeer games.
1: It's a weird double-edged sword to, to live in where it's like, yes, you have to work under Ryan Murphy and kind of conform to what they want. But at the same time, it's like, you at least have a consistent job and you're allowed to be kind of creatively free to some extent. So you make do. Yeah. Um, the film was also used for the basis of the song, Silk Chiffon by
0: Muna featuring Phoebe Bridgers. Um, And it's described as a song for kids to have their first gay kiss to.
1: Did I have my first gay kiss to that? No, my first gay kiss was not to that. I don't remember what the hell my first gay kiss was to. It's been so many years.
0: My very first gay kiss was actually in the back of a gym with complete silence.
1: In the (laughs) back of a gym with complete silence.
0: Yeah, and when I say the back of a gym, I don't mean like in the back of like towards the wall. I'm talking about the backside of a gymnasium itself. (laughs)
1: <laughs> good for you yeah so uh,
0: that completes everything I have as far as like trivia goes do you have anything else that you would like to add on to the conversation about but I'm a uh,
1: I think that the long and short of it is number one go and watch this fucking movie it is so fun it's so different it's oddly political it's oddly poignant for what it talks about but it at least ends on a positive note for both what I can consider, quote-unquote, your main and your very, very side actors. And it's fun. It's different. It doesn't try to be anything that it's not. I would truly, truly, truly love to do something like this for Halloween, but I know that nobody would get the fucking references that I'm pulling out for this. But it's just a fun fucking movie.
0: And a fun thing also to point out, too, is that uh, Jamie Babbitt's financier... At the time, was somebody who I think worked for uh, a really like important financial institution, and he was very open-minded with what she wanted. He only had two concessions, and that was that Rosario Dawson not play Megan, (laughs) and that like he was really willing to give this movie like an additional fifty thousand like five hundred thousand dollars so it went up to like a million dollar budget because originally i think it was only five hundred thousand dollars so he was very open to this and uh the only other thing that she had to do was i think sign off on like the amount of money that she would be getting from this film and she has said to this day that she has not seen a penny for this film but she got a career out of this film so she got everything she wanted from it um I think that Jamie Babbitt should be compensated for this film, absolutely. But I think that to keep her vision intact, that she did what she needed to for the financier to give her the money that she wanted.
1: I think it would be fascinating to see Jamie Babbitt do something similar to this again. And I, and I don't want like a repeat of this exact thing. What I'm talking about is to see them do more projects that have this kind of like nonsensical humor about it but I know that that's probably that that's probably out there. I just haven't seen it yet.
0: Yes. If you want to watch a really good movie from her, watch the Itty Bitty Titty Committee. And it is also a very star-studded. Movie. Um and it's a very, very fun, like feminist, like poke and take the piss out of the third wave of feminist, like film.
1: Oh, good. Good to know. Yeah.
0: So if you would like to watch that with me sometime, I am more than happy to watch it. And that could even be a bonus episode as well on its own.
1: We have a lot of bonus episodes to get through, holy shit. Yeah, we do, and
0: we got a very late start to this. We did say at the very beginning of Pride that we'd be giving out some episodes, and this is the first one, and we're already at the 20th, or 21st, so we apologize for the very late uh, you know, giving of our bonus episode, but we will be giving you more. That is something we do intend on doing, and we will be covering um, probably more queer film as we go on into July
1: you have to remember we are we're gay every day that isn't pride month as well so yeah. we're gonna get bonus episodes from us that are going to be kind of all over the place and kind of covering a wide spectrum of it the only other movie that i personally think that we should cover for pride month specifically because i've been talking about it has been fire island because it came out recently and it's Honestly, it's kind of a nice contrast to something like this because we have this, this Lesbian film, Fire Island's kind of a gay film, and it provides us a little bit more of the political spectrum where we can talk about things and be a little bit pointed about stuff, which is fun.
0: Absolutely. I would love Yeah, I would love to talk about and I'm gonna throw this out there too for something that we could talk about as well. Um, I would love to go to do Paris' is burning.
1: Yeah, that'd be fun as well. I help.
0: think Paris's is- I think Paris is Burning would be a fun movie to do. Um, I think that we would kill it with either totally fucked up or nowhere from Gregoraki, my own from Idaho, um, the incredibly true story of two girls in love. I think that would be a really, really great like queer film for the ladies. Desert Hearts, amazing one too. We could talk about Showgirls because of course. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, we could talk about Sleep Boy Camp. There's so many movies to talk about, Dom. And uh I just want to put that there for the listeners out there. You know, we do our best to get out as much as we can in a timely manner. It's very hard sometimes though because we do have, you know, very active lives. Um, Dom has a situation with a sibling who is, you know, currently battling a illness. I deal with a chronic illness myself. Um, And we both work full-time financial jobs. And it's pretty hard to make everything work in the schedule that we want. But we do our best to get out this kind of content for you guys. Even if it's not consistent to the way that we would like it to be.
1: And the truth of the matter is is that, I think especially now that we're in this point where we're making bonus episodes and we're kind of deep into Season 2 of Nip Tuck, it's important to say, and, and it's important to be aware of the fact that We're not doing this for financial gain. We're not doing this to get a sponsorship from BetterHelp or to get a sponsorship from any real company that's out there. I mean, unless they want to, they're more than welcome to. But we're really doing this kind of just for the sake of fucking doing it because we're bored and we want to do something. Yeah, this is very much a passion project for us. And we're okay with that.
0: Yeah. We love our listeners. We love you guys. Stay safe. Have fun. Um, If you would like to follow us, you can email us at niptalkedpod at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Nip Talked Pod. You can follow me on Instagram
1: at A Street Cat Named Desire. And for Dominique, you can follow... At uh, Art like Work Of on both Instagram and Twitter. And That's... even though my profile says private, just add me either way. Go for it.
0: Exactly. Thank you guys for listening. And
1: I think that wraps this episode. Yep. I think we're good. We're good. Be sure to All watch right? But I'm a Cheerleader. This movie's amazing. Be sure to stream it and pay for it. Jamie Babbitt deserves all the money for
0: this. Um, we will be back on Sunday with our usual episode of Nip Talk. and maybe you guys will see episode here very shortly. We will see, oh, we depending are. on our schedule. Yeah, but we will do our best to get you guys some more queer content.
1: But right. either way, we love you. Happy Pride! You. Happy Pride! Bye. Bye.